If you would, take a copy of uh, Scripture, if you have one with you. If you don't have a copy of the Word, you can always follow along in the bulletin as well. Uh, This is a New Year's-themed sermon today, since New Year's is yesterday. I thought it fitting. And I also want to say thank you to Kellen and Samantha and Jenny for doing the music today so I could focus on preaching. It's wonderful. All right, Hebrews 10, 19 through 39. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses, How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. Again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall... The former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have called us here today to hear your word, to be changed by it, not just to hear it and uh, enjoy it, but to hear it, enjoy it, be confronted by it, be changed by it, and most of all, to see you through it. Father, we pray that as we consider this scripture text this morning, that you would uh, tune our hearts to your will, tune our hearts to what is good, so 
so that we may glorify you and be a light to the world. Pray this in your name. Amen. Jesus is better. Jesus is the best. That's what the first nine chapters of Hebrews is about. Jesus was the only one who was able to fulfill the law, and because of that, because of what Jesus has done, our lives are changed. Here in Hebrews 10, we begin to see how our lives are changed in light of what Jesus has done. So the main theme for today's scripture passage is that the Christian life, according to Hebrews, is proximity to God, persisting in faith, and love towards others. The Christian life, according to Hebrews, is proximity to God, persisting in faith, and love towards others. Hebrews opens by saying that Jesus is the better word of God. God spoke to us in many times and in many ways, but now he's spoken to us through his son. Later on in Hebrews, Jesus is the better priest. He doesn't just offer up a sacrifice. He offers up his own blood. And his blood is pure and stainless. It doesn't have any mark of sin. Because of that, Jesus is our only hope for salvation. So that's Hebrews 1 through 9 in a nutshell. And so the foremost mark of the Christian life is one that is marked by the gospel. It's one that's founded upon the gospel of Christ. There's no other way that we can come to God or be a part of his people. And that's why we see that our confidence is not based on, in anything that we have done, but in the blood of Christ through his flesh as the curtain, the entrance into the holy place of God. This is recalling back to the Old Testament where the worship of God was centered upon the tabernacle, the, the holy place, where a priest, the high priest, would enter once a year to offer sacrifice. But for us, we are able to enter into the very throne room of God at any time through the blood of Christ. Jesus accomplished what we could never have done. He has given us access to God and has restored our relationship with God through his own blood. Those who put their faith in Jesus are now changed and made new through the washing, regeneration of the Spirit, the regeneration of our being. So what is the Christian life according to Hebrews, and why would I want to live that life? After what Jesus has done, what difference does it make? Well, Hebrews 10 here shows us uh, the Christian life in three points, um, verses 19 through 25, three let us statements that are founded upon this gospel certainty. So let's look at what those let us statements are. The first mark of the Christian life is proximity to God. Let us draw near to God with a true heart in full assurance of faith. And the reason why we ought to draw near to God is because of what he has done, what this gospel foundation is, that Jesus is better. You can see that our call for us to draw near to God is sandwiched in between the gospel reality. On one hand, what Jesus has already done for us as the high priest And on the other hand, 
how we have been washed, how that has been applied to us, our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now, I know that most of you, when you get home today, will probably have a list 10 miles long of things that you have to get done. Maybe things like taking care of your family, cooking, cleaning, and maybe engaging with your neighbors. Maybe you didn't get everything done at the office this week, or you have a big deadline coming up, and so you have to do some things. Maybe you have, uh, for, kids, for you kids, maybe you aren't in school right now, but you've got lots of things on your list that you weren't able to do during the school season, that now it's time to get them all in before, the, before school starts again. Uh, you've got you've to get them all in. How many things are running through your head that you have to get done? We live in a fast-paced culture that drives us forward, always keeping us with our nose to the grindstone. In your week, how much time do you spend drawing near to God? When you get home today, how long will it be until you draw near to God? Maybe you have Bible study with the community group later on today, or maybe you have a quiet time this evening. Or maybe tomorrow morning you'll draw near to God with a quiet time. Or maybe well, the next time you draw near into the throne room of God be next week, next Sunday. Well, the first mark of the Christian life is that we are in God's presence, that we draw near to God through the blood of Christ. That's something that we ought to be doing all the time, not just a few times a day. Just like Jesus spent hours praying and devoting time to speak with his Father, we need to spend time with our Father. Is it really that important? Is this really a foundation for the Christian life? Yes, it is. When you become a child of God, you have a new identity. And part of this identity is needing to draw near to God. One of my favorite shows, TV shows, is about a white-collar forger who gets caught by the FBI and has to help them solve FBI cases. And throughout the series, there's a couple times when he has to forge a new identity in order to escape some kind of uh, impending peril. And the problem with these forged identities is that they don't have any history behind them. You can create a really nice-looking piece of paper that says you're this person, but if you look up the name, they're not going to have a birth certificate, social security, or any kind of credit card trail. And at one point, uh, the main character finds this other forger who has raised kind of these false identities. He's created birth certificates, and then throughout the years, created trails, uh, credit card statements, etc., for years. And when the main character steps into that identity, he's taking on all the history of that identity. Similarly, when Jesus transferred his identity to us, he gave us all his righteousness and took our identity of sin upon himself. We talk about imputation this way, this receiving his righteousness, he receiving our sin and paying for it. But imputation also means that we receive his history. We receive his habits, his behavior. We must be like Christ. 
A new, idea, a new identity means new behavior, and we must walk in Christ's footsteps. But we've been trained, we've trained ourselves in this culture to pay attention to things that are flashy, things that catch our eyes. In this world of TikTok, YouTube, news, Facebook, things that entice our heart desires, we've trained our minds to focus on things that are here today and gone tomorrow. But when we draw near to God, we see something better than anything the world has to offer. The temptations, addictions, distractions of this world are powerful. But the presence of God is more. The more you draw near to him, the more you will see his goodness and be satisfied with him. So we must draw near to God because he has drawn near to us. So the first mark of the Christian life is proximity to God. The second mark of the Christian life is persisting in faith. Look at verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. While the first picture of the Christian life is God-focused, or vertically focused, the second picture is inward-focused in our hearts. It's endurance in the midst of trial. But first of all, before we look at what that means, what is this confession of hope that he's talking about? What are we meant to hold on to? Well, again, it's that Jesus is better, right? That we have a Savior who has accomplished what we could not. He takes away all the guilt and punishment for our sins and gives us life. How hard is it in our culture today to hold on to that confession? How hard is it to stand in a culture that redefines authority and truth every two minutes and say that God is the supreme authority over all creation? Or, more personally, how hard is it to hold on to our confession when it means that you have to admit to your spouse that you've sinned against them? Or kids, when you have to tell your parents that you've broken their rule? Or parents, when you have to admit to your kids and confess that you were angry and sinful in your anger. Our confession, our belief, says that in Christ you are fully known and fully loved. But we live in fear instead of hope. Well, there may be consequences for our actions, and it's painful to confess and bear those consequences. But God's mercy is more. God's grace rights our wrongs. God's mercy allows us to admit our failures and know that God will sanctify us. That he will make you more and more like himself because Jesus has already paid the cost. God has promised to right every wrong, including when we mess up our relationships. How much more would we be willing to admit our sin to one another if we were confident that God would sanctify all our brokenness. There are many broken promises in our world, from politics to the workplace to home. We are broken people. We fail to keep our word often. But do you know who has never broken his promise? Do you know who has fulfilled his promise to send his son, the Savior, to take away our sin? God did. That's why we can hold fast and confess our hope in Christ. 
And our confession isn't just words, it's action. It's pursuing that broken relationship and saying, I believe that God can fix this, that God will fix this, that God can make undone the mistakes that I have made. The third mark of the Christian life is our love towards one another. Verse 24 and following says, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. Folks, it has been a tough two years with COVID. We've lost multiple families for multiple reasons. And I want to be careful and I want to be sensitive here with this because there are many reasons why people haven't come back to worship in church in general and here at Forest Gate. Most of you have come back, but we still have a few that haven't. We've also gained new members and new attenders, and so it could be easy to brush this aside and say it was a different context, different culture, different problem. But while the early church may have been more concerned about persecution than a pandemic, we still need to understand what the heart issues here are. So again, I'm going to set the let us statement, the, the, uh, what we ought to do in this description of the Christian life, in its context of uh, why we ought to do this. We love and practice and practice good works and meet together because we see the day drawing near. What day is this that he's talking about? It's the day that our bridegroom returns to take us home. It's the first day of eternal bliss with God in heaven. I don't know about you, but I'm pretty miserable at living with an eye to eternity. Uh, The apostles seem to have it down a little bit better than me. Scripture is loaded with uh, the eye for eternity. But it's hard to live life knowing that our time is short. On one hand, I value my time too much. I don't realize that living in the immediate presence of God will be my reality for all but a short blip here on earth. I pretend like I have all the time in the world to live my life. I pretend that I have no idea what the future brings. And I pretend that my life is mine and that I should be able to do whatever I want with it. On the other hand, I live like what I do here doesn't matter, as if God doesn't care what I do with my life as long as I believe in Jesus. As if God doesn't care what I do with my life, I ignore the love and good works, the gathering together that he has given to me as a good gift and as useful and precious use of my time here on earth. I forget that God calls me to redeem my time as a reflection of how he has redeemed my life. Think of it this way. There's a lot of preparation that goes into a wedding. Uh, The food has to be planned, bought, prepared. The venue has to be selected and decorated. The guests have to be put on a list, invited, confirmed. A lot of little things that need to be done in order for the wedding to go well. All of these things require action and effort, but the overall occasion is the wedding day. It's the celebration. It's the 
first day of new life. If you put yourself in the place of the bride getting all these things lined up, would you be excited? Would you be eager to get things done? You're not checking things off the list because they're things that you have to do, the daily routine. You're doing them because of the excitement that that day brings. And that's exactly what our, our lives ought to look like. Our spurring of each other onto love and good works, meeting together, aren't things to get done. They are signs of our trajectory towards the day when Christ comes to gather his people into eternal bliss. Are there health concerns with gathering together? Certainly. There are a lot of unknowns in the realm of safety these days, especially with the recent trends with COVID. Are there fears that your loving service towards others could be used, abused, and manipulated almost inevitably? We live in a world that wants to twist and destroy the love and good deeds that show forth the kingdom of God. But the light of the coming glory shines through the darkness to dispel all fears. The joy of this future glory eclipses our fears and changes our hearts. Instead of what if, what if this were to happen, we're able to say even if. Habakkuk 3 17 through 19 gives us an example of this. It says, Even if the fig tree does not blossom, and there's no fruit on the vines, if the yield of the olive fails, and the fields produce no food, even if the flock disappears from the fold, and there are no cattle in the stalls, yet I will triumph in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength, and he has made my feet like the deer's feet. And has me walk on my high places. Even if our world never returns to the normal that we hope for. Even if we are persecuted for our faith. Even if we love unconditionally like God has loved us. And that love is trampled in the dirt. God is still faithful. Even if God takes our breath. The breath of a loved one calls us home. He is good. Do not be afraid. Be wise. Take care. But do not be afraid. So those are the three marks of the Christian life, according to Hebrews. Proximity to God, persisting in faith, and love towards others. That's not the end of our passage what if we don't really believe that God will be faithful to his promises? Or what if it seems like it's too much work, too great a cost to trust? Verses 19 through 25 show us the anti-Christian life. What, what if I don't want to live the Christian life? There are two things here. One, our arrogant sin, and two, God's vengeance. Arrogant sin, that is, Anyone who goes on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth. Hebrews is contrasting the sin that is done willfully with the knowledge of truth and sin that isn't. If you trip in front of a bus, your mistake will end up with certain consequences. But if you know a means of salvation and ignore it, 
your consequences will be even greater. It's like that joke of the man who's drowning in the ocean and a boat comes by and offers to save him. And he says, no, God will save me. Well, he dies. And when he meets God, he angrily asks God, why didn't you save me? God said, I sent you a boat, but you rejected it. All of us this morning have knowledge of the boat of salvation. By being here, by hearing the gospel preached, we know that there is salvation from our sins and that Jesus is the only way. God's justice demands payment for our sin. That that includes your sin. But when you hear and reject the gospel, you are adding sin. You are trampling on the blood of our Savior. Furthermore, God holds vengeance in his hands. God will repay. Hebrews here quotes the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 32, where God is talking about how he will judge the enemies of Israel. He will repay their persecution of his people, but he will also judge his people for their unfaithfulness. Just because you're part of a church, just because you come every week, doesn't mean that you're covered. If you look Christian on Sunday, but reject Jesus in your everyday life, your actions betray your heart and your unbelief and arrogant sin. If you haven't believed in Christ, take Hebrews' warning here. That is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But again, that's not where Hebrews leaves us. Uh, so where does this leave us? Verses 32 through 39 conclude with an encouragement for patient endurance. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. The Christian life is not easy. It's a life marked with suffering and pain. When we receive Christ's identity, we also, with his righteousness, with his new life of drawing near to God, we also receive his suffering. We too will suffer like he did. We may not face imprisonment or martyrdom like the early church or like our brothers and sisters in hostile areas of the world but we do face many trials that erode our confidence and blur our view to eternity. The author of Hebrews knew that the church was struggling to hold on to the promise of God. He knew that they wanted to throw in the towel, and we may feel like that too sometimes. So he reminded them of what God had brought them through so far. He reminded them of their service and their love for one another. He reminded them that God would bring them through to the end. We too have struggled and are prone to doubting in this past year and in years before. We've been weighed down by the doubts of this world that pull our eyes from our Savior. But God has brought us through. God has been faithful. And he will be faithful still, for it's just a little while longer until we see our Savior face to face. 
We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. We will see the dawning of the day of our Lord. We will be brought into his kingdom. The God, the Father of our Savior Jesus Christ will surely do it. Let's pray. Great God, you have called us out of a world of suffering and hopelessness into a world where we suffer not hopelessly, where we have hope because your promise for eternal rest is sure. Help us to live and draw near to you daily, every moment that we can. Help us, Father, to hold on to the confession that we have, to be able to be bold, knowing that you are true to your word. And help us, Father, to love, spur one another on to love and good works, and to gather together to reflect that day when we will be together as one people in the kingdom of glory. We pray this in our Savior's name. Amen.